Welcome. This is Cascade Church Portland's podcast. We exist to invite all people to join us as we follow Jesus together in bringing heaven to earth. Pause. It actually might be helpful uh, to maybe close your eyes, kind of get your feet set, settled, get those breaths, because I want you to be able to reflect and think of a time in your life where you've acute, you were acutely aware of God's presence. Whatever that means to you, whatever that looks like, there's a time in your life where you felt very much like God is here, God is in this place, I know who God is. And then what I want you to discuss with the the people around you is talk about maybe what that moment was, what that experience was, but I want you to say, how did that feel? That experience of being acutely aware of God's presence, what did that feel like? Okay, so go ahead and turn to the people around you and discuss that. What did that feel like? All right. If we can have the person who's sharing be able to kind of finish sharing about that. And here's what I'd love to hear from all of you. And you can just kind of yell it out, say it out. I'd be interested to hear maybe if it's yours or someone else in your group that shared, what, what were some of the feelings that you had when you're kind of acutely aware of the presence of God? What did you feel? Peace. Good. What else? Anything else? Comfort. Warmth. Weirdness. That's good. Love. Safety. A right direction. Yeah. Faithful. Good. Yeah, it's interesting. Fear. Did someone say fear? Yeah. I was kind of hoping that one would come up. Uh, that's not the one we're, like, going with this morning, but I do... <laughs> I thought if we're, if we're honest, that actually might be one of the experiences that we have with the presence of God. Yeah. And the reason why we want to talk about that is we want you to get in touch with some of those experiences. 
usually those experiences of the presence of God are very time and place bound. So when I said for you to like a time you were acutely aware, you usually could feel what the room or the place or the space you were in was like. There might even be like smells that came with that. It was a, a thing that you experienced, but usually it was in a particular time and a particular place. And if I were to ask you, do you feel that right now? You might have like a secondary experience of it, but maybe not. And one of the premises we're going to look at this morning is what if that experience, what if those feelings that you have with the presence of God, what if that was transferable? What if those came in places and times where you didn't expect them to be? What difference would that make? Would it make a difference? How would it work and be experienced? So what we're doing is we're kicking off a brand new message series, and it's called Perspectives. The hope of this uh, whole message series is we are um, going to be looking at one story from the Bible over four weeks with four different people preaching on it. And if there's like a purpose of this message series, the purpose of the message series is to linger. Uh, a lot of times in the Bible, we read the Bible like a textbook, or we engage the Bible like it's a textbook. So it's for comprehension, which in school is I don't read something to like let it soak in or to see what else it could teach me. I read it to get the thing it's supposed to teach me. I take a test to prove that I got that, and then I move on. And a lot of times with the Bible, we read these stories to get the thing that there is to get, and then we move on. What's the nugget? What's the truth? What's the idea? Got it. Let's scoot on. But the hope in this message series is we're going to stay in one story, and intentionally we have four different people preaching, because we engage stories differently. Especially stories in Scripture, there's actually different interpretations of these and what we think about them. And one of the ways that I've been really challenged is kind of informed some of this idea is when I read Old Testament commentaries, I started to read more and more Jewish commentaries. And one difference that I know be between Christian commentaries and Jewish commentaries is Jewish commentaries will say, some people think it's this thing, some people think it's this thing, some people th think it's this thing. But for the purpose of this commentary, we're going to go with this thing. And in Jewish commentaries, not all the time, but often I'll say, some people think this thing, some people think this thing, some people think this thing. And then we move on. And what I like about that is truth isn't one perspective. It's what we just talked about in our last message series. We believe that in God, we have the objective truth, but we learn more about that, not when we hear one person talk about how they view it, but when we hear many different people talk about the different facets of that truth and what it looks like. And my hope in, in, in this time is that you're going to have an experience of this story that resonates deeply with you. It might be more in line with how you view um, it, or you would be challenged by a viewpoint that you're like, I never would have looked at the story that way. I never would have interpreted this story that way. And the hope is that when you encounter scripture, when you encounter stories, when you encounter truth in your life, when you encounter God, you'd be willing to linger and not just move on to say, like, I got the thing that this was for, but to say, what is this here to teach me? Because as you might be familiar with in life, we tend to have reoccurring things in our, themes in our life. 
we tend to fall into different situations and similar themes in our relationships with our family or our friends, and we keep on running into these same things over and over and over again. And part of me wonders, have we learned the lesson it was here to teach us? Or do we think we lived, uh, learned it and moved on? What, what happens when we linger? What happens when we say, what is this thing here for? What is this experience here for? Why is it there and what can it teach me? So, what we want to do first and foremost as we get into this is we're going to lay some context. Um, I've shared this quote before, but man, it's one of my favorites because it's so transferable to lots and lots of situations. So uh, here it is. A text without a context is a pretext for making it say whatever you want. Unpacking that is any book you've ever read, any story you've ever read, a text taken out of the context in which it was written or the audience for whom it was written for just lets you make it say whatever you want it to say. And one of the things that I think is interesting uh, is there is a big movement. I don't know if it's as big anymore, but it was about banning books in libraries and schools because there is language or there is viewpoints. Usually it's, it's racism and we remove them from our libraries. What I think would be more interesting is if we kept them in our libraries and we taught on the context of the society and the structure. Oh, we might learn something about why they were writing this book and why these beliefs were prevalent. If we erase it from our history, we may not gain any transferable truth that we can use in our world here and today. I think a main critique of the Bible is it's old, it's boring, it doesn't have anything to say about the world today. If you just try and make it speak to our world today, but you don't understand its context, you're right. It is an out-of-touch, detached book of stories that doesn't make any sense. If you sit with the culture and the time that it was in, oh my gosh, we'll have so much to say about our world today. If you ever travel to another country and you have to go through customs, you have to bring your passport, you have to show where you were from they have to see, like, where are you from? Where are you coming from? And that's a part of the process of entering the new country. I actually think that's helpful with wisdom and with text and books. We have to check its passport. Where did this thing come from? And only when we understand that can this truth, can this idea travel. If we want to understand ancient wisdom in our world today, then we need to understand the ancient world. We need to understand the context it was in. So that's why we do this. It's not so that we can pretend we know more about the Bible or you can impress your friends, because your friends probably can't be impressed with biblical trivia. This is to set the context so we can see what's the truth that's present today that it was there. So we are going to be looking at a story from Genesis. And in Genesis, we, we need to kind of talk about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The story we're dealing with deals with Jacob, but it really is tied to Abraham and Isaac. So the, the story of the Bible begins with Adam and Eve. We have the story of Noah. We have these other, the other stories. The, the, sto the action really picks up. Uh, I mean, the action's pretty good in the beginning too. Don't get me wrong. But when we have the introduction of Moses and this I'm going to talk about Moses at this point, yeah. When we talk about Moses and bringing the Israelite people out of Egypt, it kind of highlights this nation, this country, this identity. And it's all tied to, as Janet just said, Abraham and the calling and introduction of Abraham to who he is and what he's supposed to be doing. And so I want you to look. This is the calling of Abraham that we see in Genesis 12, verse 3. 
This is the promise that God gives Abraham. I will bless those who bless you. Those who curse you, I will curse. All the families of the earth will be blessed because of you. God is calling Abraham to leave his family and to set out on this journey. And the call is, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to bless you. And the world will know the blessings of God through you. Uh, Again, talking about context, this, while it may not seem anything necessarily revolutionary, is a revolutionary idea of God. Uh, In the ancient world, God did not exist to bless people. People existed to serve the gods so that the gods wouldn't withhold the good things from them. That the gods were ultimately fickle. You couldn't predict what the gods were going to do. So you sacrificed, you gave them crops, you slaughtered animals, you did all kinds of rituals and things to appease the gods. But a God who calls into a covenant relationship, a partnership with humanity, this is a new concept. Later in Genesis verse 26, we have this blessing that's given to Abraham's son Isaac. I am the God of your father Abraham. Don't be afraid because I am with you. I will bless you and give you many children for my servant Abraham's sake. What's important to note is that this blessing to Abraham is traveling. It's transitioning through the family from Abraham and it moves to Isaac. Now Isaac has two sons and his two sons Esau and Jacob are twins Uh, The story is told really well. I encourage you to go back and kind of read more about this birth. But uh, Esau is born first. He has the shock of red hair. His name just means the red one. That's what Esau means. It's a great way to name people. I encourage all of you expectant parents to kind of go that route. Just first impressions, go with it. Uh, He's the red one. And then the child that comes after in the story is Jacob is actually grabbing on to the heel of Esau. And Jacob translates to heel grabber. Great name. It's up for grabs. I don't think it's in the top 50 list in U.S. boys' names. So Jacob is there as heel grabber. And their whole life, we have this idea, uh, which we may not understand in our context today. In this ancient Near East context, the firstborn son gets the birthright and the blessing. They're in charge of the family when the father passes. So these are patriarchal societies, which means that the men are the ones in charge and who rule. And so they are passing it down from father to son, from father to son, from father to son. And so to be a twin who is born second, oh, that's a brutal, that's a brutal break. I mean, you were there the same time just by the chance. I mean, who could say who came out first? They get the responsibility. They get everything passed to them, and the secondborn forever comes underneath their care. And so what this sets up is this relationship between Esau and Jacob. Now, what we want to look at as we kind of set this is that if you are familiar with the story, which you may or may not be, it's totally okay. If you are familiar, you know that there's a bit of deception we're going to look at next. But this is what will be important for all of us to keep in mind when you look at this deception. In Genesis 26, verses 34 and 35, when Esau was 40 years old, we're talking about a 40-year-old man. Hold on to that. That's going to be more important later. When Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, daughter of Barry the Hittite, and Basemath, daughter of Elon and Hittite. They went with Basemath because addition subtraction was too long. Um, that's, that's a decent Bible name joke. 
they made life very difficult for Isaac and Rebecca. Now, there, there gets into some other factors that are going on here with the, the relationship between sons and who they marry. And if they marry someone who's with the family or they keep it within the family, what Esau's doing is marrying someone outside of the family. So you think of different traditions, different religions, different understandings of the world. These things are coming into conflict uh, when Esau married someone from outside of the normal family expectations. And it says it makes it difficult for Isaac and Rebekah. So here's the story. Two twin 40-year-old brothers. Isaac, the father, is not doing well. Oh, well, let me back up for a second. Before that, Esau, who has the birthright, he goes out and hunting. He's the hunting one. Jacob is the one that kind of hangs out at home. These are the, the ways that the story is told. Esau goes out to hunt. He comes back. He didn't succeed in hunting. He didn't catch anything. And he's really, really hungry. And so he goes back to Jacob. And he says, I'm too weak to even make myself food. Will you make me something to eat? And Jacob, the heel grabber, goes, oh, totally. Just sign over your birthright to me. Like the fact that you get everything from dad, you give that to me, and I got a lentil stew with your name written all over it. Esau ch- trades his birthright for the stew to, to be fed, which there's all kinds of levels to that. When you think of like our immediate needs and how strongly we feel them, we can sit here in the room right now, and depending on your level of hunger, you might say, that is a ridiculous trade. If you were really, really hungry, who cares about a birthright? That's a future thing. I just care about right now. What does it mean to exploit that weakness for the sake of this family blessing going forward? So Esau has already traded the birthright. He doesn't have that thing anymore. But later in in the same story, after he's already traded it, Esau is with his father. Isaac calls him in. His eyesight is failing. He's older in age. He feels like the end is near. And so he tells Esau, go and catch me something. You're a great hunter. Go catch me. Make me the food the way I like it. I have a family blessing that I want to extend to you. And it's a blessing that you will be blessed. You will have many children. You will have a great and successful life. Now, in this story... Rebecca, Isaac's wife, overhears this. And Rebecca's like, I don't think I like this idea. So she pulls Jacob, her son, in and goes, hey, here's what's happening. Esau just got sent out to go hunt something for dad, and he's going to get the blessing. So go put on some of your brother's clothing. We're going to put some hair on your arms because you're smooth, and we know Esau's not, and we're going to go in there. You're going to talk like Esau. You're going to smell like Esau. He's going to feel your arms and think you're Esau, and you're going to get the family blessing. So Rebecca orchestrates a situation where while Esau's out, Jacob goes in and receives the blessing. And the story is structured really well where it says, like, the moment Jacob walks out successfully impersonating his brother and with the blessing, Esau walks in. If you think of like, if you ever watched a play, it's written into the story exactly like that. As one character walks out, the other character walks in. Esau says, I'm here. I did it. Here's your food. And Isaac goes, too late. The blessing's gone. I already gave it to your brother. We don't get to take that back. We don't get to reverse course on that. It's gone. Esau is understandably furious 
And there's this great line, one of my favorite lines in the story. He goes, right now I'm really sad because dad's dying, but the moment I get over grieving, I'm going to kill Jacob. (laughs) I got a lot of sadness, but I see some anger on the horizon. So Rebecca hears this as well and sends Jacob off, sends him away. Go to our, 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 our friends and our family. You need to get out of here. One of the things that's really interesting to note is in the ancient Near East kind of power structure, the classical power structure in that story would be Isaac as the father has the power, Esau as the firstborn has the second most power, Jacob as another male in the story has the third most power, and Rebecca the wife has the the least power of the four characters. How the story actually plays out is Rebecca wields the most power, setting her son and moving him into it. Jacob takes over this role and this blessing. Then Esau and Isaac is blind and powerless and is the victim of everything that happens. It's a full reversal of the power structure. Now, there's a lot of commentary on this. And in light of perspectives, this whole message series, I'll say, I don't know. What does this deception mean? Why is this happening? And why doesn't God intervene? Why don't we correct it? Are we valuing deception? We don't know. We just know that the deception is certainly there and this blessing sticks. So the part of the story that we want to look at now is we want to see what happens to Jacob as he leaves his family. Now, one thing to note going into this and kind of further setting that context, a 40-year-old man who has lived with his parents and his brother for his whole life, as much as we know as Isaac has been there with his family his whole life, and now at 40 years old, he is heading off on his own for the first time ever. He's not married. We don't know that they're sending him with servants or other people. Isaac, or sorry, Jacob is going off for the first time on his own. Think about that experience. What would that feel like after knowing a certain family structure for so long to all of a sudden be completely without it? So we want to look here in Genesis 28, starting in verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. He reached a certain place and spent the night there. And when sun had set, he took one of the stones at that place and put it near his head. Then he lay down there. He dreamed and saw a raised staircase, its foundation on earth, and its top touching the sky, and God's messengers were ascending and descending on it. Suddenly the Lord was standing on it and saying, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. The descendants, your descendants will become like dust of the earth. You will spread out over the west, east, north, and south. Every family on earth will be blessed because of you and your descendants. I am with you now. I will protect you everywhere you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I've done everything I have promised you. When Jacob woke from his sleep, he thought to himself, the Lord is definitely in this place, but I didn't know it. He was terrified and thought, this sacred place is awesome. It's none other than God's house and the entrance to heaven. After Jacob got up early in the morning, he took a stone he had put near his head, set it up as a sacred pillar, and poured oil on the top of it. He named that sacred place Bethel, though Luz was the city's original name. So it's this fascinating story where there's been this deception, this family betrayal. Jacob is on the run. He's all by himself. He has this night out in the wilderness, out in the desert. He's sleeping on a rock, 
Which again, we don't read that and be like, no, that's just something people did. No, that's a really uncomfortable on the run move, okay? You don't sleep on rocks when you're in a good place. Jacob is in a desolate place where a rock seems a good place to lay your head. And he has this vision. Now, one of the things that's, that's interesting, again, in this context is the Babylonians would build these big uh, ziggurats. So like these big temples and towers that go up into the sky. And you would, the idea is that you would climb up them to make your offerings to God because the gods exist in the heavenly realm up there. And it was your role to go up there to appease these gods. What's interesting about this vision is that we have the same kind of structure, but God's messengers are going up and down. And he says there's like this pathway, there's this opening in this space between the heavenly realms and earth. What's interesting is this place doesn't exist as a place where God comes down or the place where we go up, where the place where the the channel is open. There's an ascending and a descending from God's things. It's heaven come to earth, earth engaging with heaven. This is the vision. And what I love most and we want to focus on today is when Jacob wakes up, that line where he says, God was in this place, but I did not know it. God was in this place, but I did not know it. See, when, you're, you're, when we go back to what we did at the beginning, we talked about the context of, have you had an experience of God? What did that feel like? Usually what that means is if the context is good or we're in a good context, we believe that God's presence is there. If we're in a bad context, that means God's absent. Oftentimes our understanding of God or our relationship with God is purely tied to our circumstances, which things are well and we're at peace, God is there. If things are difficult or hard, God is not there. The exception can that can be when we're in a really hard place, but then we suddenly are filled with hope. This is God returning. God shows back up. And what's interesting in this story is that when Jacob is alone, when Jacob has nothing, when the story has turned, he has the birthright and the blessing, but he doesn't have any of the family support anymore. You imagine there's an incredible sense of loneliness and isolation. He's all alone in the world. That God is there even in that place. That God is present in that place. So what we want to ask is, it seems like he becomes aware of God in a way that Jacob hadn't previously. And the question is, does that make a difference? When I first thought about this, I thought, how do we talk about this in such a way where we can increase our awareness of God? How do we become more aware of God in our world and our lives? But then I thought, we should probably take a step back and say, does awareness of God matter? We can't say, like, here's a way you can become more aware of God if you're like, no, thank you. I don't know that I want awareness of God in my life, in my world, in my spirituality. That understanding is of spirituality. So to answer that question, does awareness of God matter? Here's the the big thing that I feel like an awareness of God brings to us is perspective. When we have an awareness of a God who created everything, who created us, who was there before us, and a God who will exist after we're on this earth, it zooms the picture out big time. 
all of a sudden we start asking different questions with the presence of God because the God we read about in these stories over 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, is still present in our life, in our world. That zooms us out big time. And what is the gift of perspective? If awareness of God helps us gain perspective, what does that bring us? The first thing I think is perspective brings learning. When we're able to zoom out, there are lessons we can learn about our life, our reality, the world that we're in. We can pick up things. We can start to see things. We say, no, God is in this place, and I become aware of it. Much of life is survival. We're figuring out how to get from day to day, how we get out from moment to moment. We're not asking questions. A lot actually like Esau when he comes back from hunting with nothing. We're not asking about what are the implications of this decision. We're just making the best decision we can make to stay alive or to be okay. Much of our decisions fall in this category. What we eat, how we eat. When we sleep, how we sleep. Where we go, what we wear. All of these are just moment-to-moment decisions. But perspective that zooms us out says, there might be some different questions I need to ask about my life, and there might be some different lessons that are here to be learned. Awareness of God allows us to learn the lessons that are there to learn. The second thing is that perspective brings perseverance. Without this engagement with God, without this awareness of God, I would suggest the option of giving up to Jacob would have been a whole lot more viable. Why keep on going when things get hard? Why keep pushing through when things appear hopeless? When we feel isolated, when we feel lonely, why do we keep going? Why do we keep showing up to our own lives? There aren't a lot of good answers in that space. But when we zoom out and we become aware of God, it can keep us going even in the face of difficulty, even in the face of loneliness and isolation because we know that God is here. There's something bigger going on. There's something that's moving and tracking us. I think an awareness of God becomes incredibly important when we're under stress, when we're in difficulty, when we face persecution, when we face difficulties, and when we feel isolated and when we feel alone. So the question would be, what blocks our awareness of God? I mean, what, what are the times when we're not aware that God is there, when that's a revelation to us when we wake up in the morning? I think it's self-obsession. And I want to take, talk about self-obsession versus self-awareness. Because a lot of times these terms or ideas are used interchangeably. To think about yourself, for many, is to be self-obsessed. And for others, it's like, no, we're becoming more and more aware of ourselves. I think the thing that blocked Jacob before was he was in a self-obsessed world, a self-obsessed realm, some created by his own actions, some created by his mother's actions and engagement with him. But he was obsessed about his life, his path, what he was going to do, what he would receive versus what others were to receive. And in that place, I think it blocks our greater awareness of who God is and what God's doing in the world because all that matters is ourselves. Being self-obsessed is just thinking about ourselves in a way that how do I keep going? What do I keep doing? Becoming self-aware means we start asking, why am I doing what I'm doing? 
What's driving me? What's moving me? Why do I feel the need to do these things? Why do I feel anger or sadness? Why do I have all these different emotions and expressions? That's the fruit of self-awareness. Self-obsession is uh, an obsession with who I am and what I'm doing and what I want to do. And so the question is, is it possible that we have become at times self-obsessed? We lack the ability to zoom out because we've trapped ourselves in the container of ourselves. Are you with me? You know what I mean? We've trapped ourselves into one viewpoint because we're obsessed with ourselves, where self-awareness actually allows us to zoom out and look at ourselves, ask questions about ourselves, and to ask questions about who is God and what is God doing in this place. Self-obsession obscures the truth of who we are, but self-awareness illuminates it. It opens it up. I think Jacob was in a self-obsessed place, and this dream allowed him to become self-aware. Who he felt within the lineage of his own family, what God was doing through him and through his father and through his grandfather, what God was inviting him to bring to the entirety of the world. This is ultimately the promise and covenant that God gives Abraham and Isaac to Jacob to be a blessing to all the world. This kind of self awareness opens up an awareness of who God is and allows us to learn lessons from the path we're in and allows us to move forward with perseverance. My invitation for you this week is to linger. In the midst of your own life, in the midst of your own day, to create a time. Maybe right now you need to go into your phone or on your watch and set a daily alarm. And the daily alarm would be is when it goes off to be able to sit and have this experience that Jacob did of waking up, I love this story because the Jacob that went to sleep and the Jacob that woke up are very different Jacobs. And what changed? His circumstances didn't change. He didn't have a Wizard of Oz moment where he's like, it was all a terrible dream. We're all here. And there's Auntie M. No, his family was still gone. He was still running. His brother was still upset and nothing about his circumstances changed. What changed was Jacob and his awareness that God was still at work in this circumstance. God was still there and he was filled with the power. And most people believe that this is a hinge point on the story and life of Jacob that allows him to do everything that he does moving forward. The alarm on our phones is an opportunity to say, God was in this place, and I, I was not aware. God is here, and God is moving with us, and God is intimately a part of your story, regardless of circumstances, and that presence is there to fill us with the things you offered. Peace. Peace. To feel a comfort, to feel a faithfulness. If there's any sense of fear, it's at the magnitude of God, not the punishment of God. How do we fill with those experiences that you've had at one point, but how do we transfer it to the moments where we think it shouldn't be accessible? How are we pausing and stopping? How are we lingering in the story of our own lives to see, oh, God is here. God is at work. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you that you are present with us. 
that especially when we're not even aware of it. God, I thank you that your presence brings a perspective that's bigger than our lives, that's bigger than our to-do list, that's bigger than our calendars. God, I thank you that your presence encourages us to keep going. Your presence allows us to learn and to transfer truth from our past into our future. God, I pray that we would lean into a self-awareness about who we are and what we're going and out of a self-obsession. God, would you stop us many times this week when we're sleeping on rocks, when we're feeling lonely and isolated, God, when we feel like we're on the run to be able to say, oh, God is in this place and I did not know it. It's in your name that we pray, amen. So would you stand? As we go to eat together next door, I pray that you would go with the awareness that God is in this place and God is in the story of your life, in the good times and in the challenging times. And God is there to bring us perseverance and to help us learn and grow. Amen and amen. Have a great week. We'll see you next door.